You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6. If you could stand to honor the reading of God's word, the words will be on the screen. My encouragement to you is that if you have a Bible or if you don't have a Bible, uh, you'll open up to Ephesians chapter 6. You can use any of the Bibles that are underneath the chairs here. If you don't have a Bible, take it home with you. Uh, or you can use your digital de- device. But we're going we're gonna to walk through Ephesians chapter 6 together this morning. We stand to honor the reading of God's Word because we believe the Bible is authoritative over our lives and over life and practice. And so that's why we stand. This is the Word of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the word may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You may be seated. Maybe for some of you, the topic of spiritual warfare may seem a little uncomfortable or feel uncomfortable to you. And so I, my hope today is that by the end of the sermon, you will be helped and you will be encouraged. That's my hope every single Sunday. But spiritual warfare is real. It's real. And may, I don't know what you think of when, when you hear the word or the phrase spiritual warfare, but Jerry Rankin, who served as a missionary in Indonesia, I believe in his late 20s and his early 30s, I forget how long he spent time there, but he shares a story, actually in this book he shares a story of after they arrived in Indonesia, uh, they had a helper who was Muslim who helped kind of keep the house and clean the house, which is not untypical. I mean, it's very common in places like Indonesia and Myanmar, like where, where my wife is from. It's, you usually have young adults or teens who will help keep the house in exchange for you know, the ability to go to school or food or that kind of thing. And so, so they had somebody they'd grown to, they developed a friendship with, this family. And the woman, I don't know what her name was, but the, but the woman uh, just seemed distraught. And Dr. Rankin, you know, I guess asked her, you know, what was going on. And, and she said, my daughter is demon-possessed. And, uh, and this was a Muslim family. My daughter is demon-possessed. Could you come to our house to pray? Because she figured any help would be, would be help. And considering that 
this family that she worked for, they were missionaries. They knew something of God, and maybe by them praying, maybe that would help. And so uh, Dr. Rankin and his wife uh, went with this, this woman to her home in this rural village and walked into the house and noticed the daughter. Her hair is disheveled. Her tor- clothes were torn. She was, she was tied to the bamboo bed, and she... When they walked into the, the bedroom, the daughter focused her gaze on, on this missionary couple, Jerry Rankin and his wife, and she said in clear English, Jesus Christ is not God, Muhammad is the servant of the Most High God. Now when, when Dr. Rankin laughed with his wife, they didn't think a whole lot of it because this was a Muslim family, and, of course, they believe in, in uh, Muhammad as the great prophet and in their version of God, Allah, uh, as, as his God, until they learned that the daughter was completely uneducated and never learned a lick of English. Now, I don't know if that's what you think of when you think of spiritual warfare, But demonic oppression and demonic possession is very real. Now, my sermon is not on demonic oppression and demonic possession, but that's certainly a part of spiritual warfare. Uh, The reality is that the devil and his demons who are under his command are at work. There are angels that... that, uh, you know, are messengers of God, and they work, they work for God, and they, they're, minister, they're called ministering spirits. They, they protect us. They, they, they're at God's disposal in terms of how he uses them to accomplish his redemptive purposes. They're good. They're holy. They're amazing. And then you have demons who are fallen angels who are at the disposal of the devil. But here's what I want to say at the very beginning, so you're not all completely wigged out over this, that the devil and his demons are on a leash. They're on a long leash, but they're on a leash, and the one who holds that leash is God Almighty. So they don't just do everything that they want to do. They do, they're, they're allowed to operate within the, the, the spectrum that God has allowed them to operate. But they're real, and they hate you. And they hate me, and they hate anybody who bears the image of the living God, which is humanity. That's why the focus of their attack is on human beings. And, and, and so they're legit. I, I sent out an e-letter, and I shared a little bit about my experience with the demonic. Uh, I've encountered it. I've been, I can count on one hand those times where I've encountered those demonically oppressed, maybe even possessed, and, uh, and, and so I, I, I enter into this sermon with great respect for the powers that are the demonic realm as well as the powers that are, are represented with God and angels. I also recognize that they have no authority over you if you are a Christian, and they have no authority over me, the demons, that is. Um, so I just want to just... Say that from the beginning. You can hear a pin drop now. You're all super quiet. Here's the other thing. The enemy, and I'm going to refer to him as the enemy, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, throughout the sermon, he is cunning. 
He is super smart. He and his demons have had thousands of years to observe human activity and behavior. They, they know what they're doing. They're not dumb. And, and if, you feel the, if you find yourself in a place where you're standing in, in the presence of somebody who's demonically oppressed, or, or possessed, or you're in, in the realm where you know there's demonic activity around you, 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 need to, you need to approach that with respect. And as my mentor said, you better be sitting in the lap of Jesus. He is our authority. He's the king. He's the one to whom the demons and Satan tremble before. And so, so I, I just wanted to share that as well. They are cunning. They will use the most effective means that they can to, um, to employ, uh, to, to, to blind unbelievers and to hinder Christians. They really don't give a rip about those of you who are just sitting on the sidelines and, and just kind of indifferent about, about God or, or about what's happening in the world. Uh, but they are concerned about the, the Christian who is actively engaging the mission of God. Yeah, I've, I've shared this story, and I... I mean, there was a movie that, uh, that, that came out. I'm hoping to see it tomorrow. Uh, it's called Nefarious. And um, I'll let you know what I think of it next week or, or the week after. But uh, I was going to take my family to see it. My son, Seth, said, Dad, I'm really not comfortable seeing that. And here's why. Uh, when I planted Missio Day Fellowship, you know, the, the spiritual warfare notch got cranked up really, really high. And, and I, I loved planting a church, and I loved seeing people come to faith in Christ, and it was amazing. But uh, during that season, my wife was suffered from chronic debilitating pain. That's when my son was diagnosed with uh, narcolepsy, my oldest son, uh, which is a severe debilitating disease. And things in the home, it was like the focus was physical, with, with members of my family. Then when I stepped down from Missio Day Fellowship, there was about, I don't know how many months, there was probably about five months between Missio Day Fellowship and, and Meadowbrook, and it was quiet, spiritually. It was really nice. Um, the day that the church decided they wanted to interview me, and then Meadowbrook wanted to interview me, and we started going down that road, that spiritual warfare dial got turned way up, and the focus was, was on my sons. While I was commuting for six months from, from Westminster to here, I would drive up on Wednesday, co go home on Sunday, uh, there were some things that were happening. And the thing that still disturbs my youngest today, my youngest son today, is while in bed, he woke up and he saw this dark, shadowy figure standing over his bed. And he put the covers over his head, and the covers were ripped from his bed. And he ran. And then, so those of you who know Seth, he doesn't, he's not some weird little kid. I mean, he's, he's got a level head on his shoulders. And he ran into, the, into our bedroom I, where mom was sleeping and spent the night in bed with his mother. He still messed up over that. It messed him up for months. We had to work through that. They're real. They're real. And... Um, and, and so, so I, let's just dive into this. So 
So before we get into Ephesians chapter 6, there's a verse I want to call your attention to. It's, it's, in, it's in 1 Peter chapter 5. I do not have the words on the screen. I'll read it for you, which kind of set the stage for Ephesians chapter 6. And it's, uh, it's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, if you're writing down notes. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. And this is what the Apostle Peter warned these suffering Christians, these local churches in the Turkey area, uh, modern-day Turkey area, he said to them, he wrote to them, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are, are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And we, we see this kind of warning all through the Bible. And so what I'd like to start do is just this begin with just setting up Ephesians chapter 6. What are, what are the devils and what are his schemes? So Ephesians chapter 6, right? Uh, verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his, his, his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, why, Paul? Why, why, do you want, why should we do that? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's why. That's why I'm charging you, church, to be strong. How, how am I supposed to be strong? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, what does that look like, Paul? It looks like putting on the whole armor of God, which that will be the second part of my sermon today. Um, what, what, is that, what is the armor of God? So that's how you do it. So who is the devil and what are his schemes? We're told in Isaiah chapter 14, in verses 12 through 14, which I believe is a description of Lucifer. Some people think it's just a king. I think it's both and. I think it's describing the king of Tyre, I think, and also Lucifer and how he fell. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly of the far reaches of the, of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the, uh, of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. It's like the, 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 the original lie in the Garden of Eden, right? <clears throat> what was the lie? Adam and Eve from the serpent, if you eat from this tree that God told you not to eat from, the reason why he didn't want you to eat from that tree is because he doesn't, want, he doesn't want the best for you. Because when you eat from that tree, you're going to be like God. You'll be just like him. And so they ate, and what happened? They were not like God. They were alienated from him as a result. When Lucifer rebelled, <clears throat> we learn from Revelation chapter 12 that one-third of, of the angels were convinced by his cunning deception. Like, let that settle on your heart for a second. He was able to convince one-third of the angels to follow him. These angels who were in the presence of God Almighty, he was able to convince and we're told in Revelation chapter 12 that they rebelled alongside with him and they were judged. Some of them, and this will be a sermon in the, sometime in the summer in Jude, we're told that some of them were bound into this, this utter darkness 
And then, but the majority of them, they're on a shelf life. Uh, their, their judgment's got a shelf life on it. it it's, it's coming, meaning their freedom has a shelf life. Their judgment is coming. And right now, God is he, he's, he's using them to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And they are wicked. They are wicked. We learn of Lucifer that his name is not just Satan and the devil, but he's given a whole host of names. Take a picture of that if you'd like to look those up. The sermon manuscript will be on the website later, later this week. But he's known as the accuser, the adversary, the beast, Beelzebub, the deceiver, the dragon, the, enmi- the enemy, the evil one, the father of lies, the god of this age, the lawless one, the mur- murderer, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of demons, the ruler of the world, the serpent of old, the tempter, the thief, and the wicked one. And just to just pick six of those titles uh, that he's given, just to, for, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a heads up, uh, he, for one, and you need to hear this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he disguises himself as an angel of light. So he looks good. And his, and his, his, his lies seem, like, seem good. <laughs> they seem good for you. You don't need to get married to have sex. Just experience it now. You don't, you don't, need, to, you don't need to be honest. You, you can cheat a little bit you know, uh, on the numbers with your taxes. You don't need to tell your boss why you are really staying home. You don't need to do those things. Like, it just sounds good. As our adversary, he sees us as the enemy. As the deceiver and the father of lies, he is a master manipulator. He's a master at manipulation and, a, and, and counterfeiting the truth with lies. He is, as the lawless one, he has no moral standard besides his own wickedness. As the murderer, he seeks to, listen, he seeks to destroy you. He seeks to destroy the image of God that you bear. As the tempter, he seeks to lure you as far from God as possible. As the thief, he seeks to rob you of the kind of life and joy that God intends for you. And he masquerades, he just... He, he, he twists it up and he, and he presents it before you and it looks attractive and what he really wants for you is to rob you of the joy that God, that God intends for you. According to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, he has schemes. Not just a scheme, but he has schemes. They're multiple. They're multifaceted. He's methodical in his scheming to accomplish his evil intentions. The primary way in which he schemes is through the world and through the weakness of our own flesh. Here's the thing you need to understand. The devil is one creature. He can't be everywhere at the same time. He's limited. He can't read your mind. He just can guess really well because he's been watching human beings do their thing for thousands of years, like I said. Charles Spurgeon said of the schemes of, the, of Satan, he said, he will attack you sometimes by force and sometimes by fraud. Some ways I see the devil scheming today is the aligning of world powers, such as China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. I mean, think about the, I just want you to think about this for a second. They're now the new axis of evil. So, so, so think about the oppression that each of those nations have been have been guilty of in terms of the, ch- the church and, and church history. 
Think of all the Christians that those governments were responsible for martyring, for murdering, for slaughtering. Think of all the Christians that were thrown in prison. Think of uh, under those different, um, those, different world, those different world powers. I find it ironic that now they've come together, or they're coming together. You know, another way that I see the schemes of the devil is the sanctioning. I, I've already, I got an angry email earlier this week over what I said last week about public schools. Um, the sanctioning and, and homophobia. The sanctioning, another way I see, see this is, is the schemes of the devil is in the sanctioning of sex reassignment hormone therapy with children. Like, this is real. Like, three years ago, and I don't, I don't get political from the pulpit, but I feel like this, this, is, this is stuff you need to be aware of. Three years ago, if you were to say, or four years ago, if you were to tell me that the legalization of pedophilia was a legit, would, should be a legit concern of the church, I wouldn't believe it. But this week, the United Nations basically deemed that it is the, it is the human right of a minor to have sex with whoever that minor wants to have sex with, regardless of the age of that individual. That's the United Nations this week. So I see the scheming of the devil in that. And you, so you, sex reassignment is basically the child, now, now there are certain states where the child can make that decision without the parent's consent. Why are we moving in that direction? Where is it moving? It's moving exactly on track where the United Nations is at now. I don't know if that law will be passed. I think of the God of Moloch in the Old Testament, child sacrifice. Why, why, why would these kind of things happen? Why are they happening today? Because there is a schemer who hates, who hates human beings because they bear the image of the living God. And, and anything associated with, with, with what God has said is good, he is perverting or seeks to pervert. That's why marriage is under attack. Mar like, his scheming is marriage shouldn't, isn't, shouldn't just be between a man and a woman. It could be between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Why, 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 is, that, why is that such of a, con a concern? Because the devil perverts things, and he, he does it in a way to rob people of the joy that God intends for them. And there are thousands of other schemes I can go into. So the devil is more concerned, I think, with with world, like the world affairs, like China, Russia, like he, he's scheming that way. His demons are involved in the everyday affairs, you know, that, that we in, encounter. The top three ways I believe the devil schemes in the, in the life of a person are as follows. He disguises himself to look good. He's, like I said, he's been around for a long time. He can do it really well. He can present himself to look really good and harmless in a, in, a, in a way that's convincing. He's uh, very good at raising up false teachers who give the impression of serving God while being empowered by Satan. Here's, I've been a pastor for like 20 years or so. I've seen this. I've seen people, people who are introduced to doctrines of demons that sound like legit doctrines of the Bible, 
but in the end wind up creating a level of skepticism in the individual, skepticism over what is genuinely true to lead them, from, lead them away from sound doctrine to worship a different Christ. I mean, it's just tangible stuff. Joseph, Joseph Smith and his followers, I think they're like, oh, this sounds really good. Jesus was created. Oh, this sounds really good. Oh, there are, we could be different gods. Oh, this sounds really good. The devil is even more subtle than that. That's, those are just some examples. He twists the word of God. He twists the word of God. The, Jesus said that the devil has been a murderer and a liar from the beginning in John chapter 8. Listen, like he was able not just to deceive a bunch of angels, like one-third of the angels, but he was able to deceive Adam and Eve in the garden. He manipulated and he distorted and he perverted the truth of God and got them to doubt the goodness of God. That was one of the first things the devil tries to get you to do, to doubt the goodness of God. He's not good if he's keeping this from you. So he, he twists the word of God. The reality is, is that every time we give in to the temptation to sin, and we all do, Okay, me included, we agree with the devil that there was something better God was withholding from us, which is the sin we seek to satisfy ourselves with, believing that God's not able to satisfy us on that level. The devil is the great counterfeiter. <clears throat> He's a master at creating attractive counterfeits, right? He does this with like sex, he does this with relationships, he does this with work, he does this uh, he's able to do this in 10,000 other ways. He's the great counterfeiter. Re remember I, I, Moses and Aaron before, uh, before Pharaoh in Egypt? I forget what chapter it was in. Uh, Exodus chapter 7, I actually have it right here, where, where uh, Moses threw down, or, or Aaron threw down his staff and it became a serpent. Remember that? Before Pharaoh. And what did Pharaoh's magicians do? They threw down their, st their staffs. And what did their staffs become? Serpents. Whose serpent ate up the other serpents? The one that God turned into, the staff that God turned into a serpent. But the devil's a great counterfeiter. He's able to do some pretty crazy things. And, uh, and he does it in, in our lives. He's really good at seducing us into believing that the cheap substitute will satisfy. And now, how can the Christian stand against the devil? That's, that's the, the armor of God piece. In verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. He doesn't say put some parts on. He doesn't say put on the, the, the belt of truth. He doesn't say and just forget the rest or put on the helmet of salvation and forget the rest. He says put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because, because your, your soul is in danger. Now, it might not lead to condemnation, like once you're saved and, you, and you've been redeemed, you're, you're saved. But, but the devil will want to sideline you. He will want to, he, he'll want to keep you quiet. He will want to paralyze you with guilt and shame. And so put on the full armor of God, because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There are demonic forces at play and at work that want to keep you quiet. And they just don't use things around you, but they're also able to use your own flesh. Our, our flesh, the, the desire to sin, because that's part of, part of us, right? Like, we are, or I saw something, <clears throat> I think on a blog post, or, or I saw a picture. There used to be a, a mirror in one of the zoos, I, don't, I can't remember what zoo it was, 
where you walk by it, and over top of it says the most dangerous predator or the most dangerous creature, and it's humans, right? Our, our greatest danger is our own us. And the devil, I mean, we make it easy for the devil. We make it easy for the demonic realm. But there is a demonic realm. And so put on the full armor of God. So what is the armor of God? Well, I'll, I, I want to walk through those with you. And again, my manuscript will be online, or you can take pictures of the slides or whatever if you find it helpful. But the belt of truth is the truth of Scripture. I find it interesting that that is the very first piece of this armor that's listed. It is the truth of God's word. It's the truth of his God's word. When Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, what did he use to combat the devil? The word of God. He used the word of God. And so, um, and in fact, when Jesus prayed for you and he prayed for me in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, we read these words. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is really... Like, this is the best verse against finding, you know, uh, creating a bomb shelter and collecting canned soup. Like, uh, <laughs> Jesus prayed specifically, I don't, want to take, I don't want you to take them out of the world, God. I don't want you to take them out of the world, Father, but that you keep them from the evil one. What did he mean by that? That they're not overcome by the evil one. And then he goes on to say, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the what? The truth. Your word is truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, we see this. Do, so Paul was instructing Timothy. By the way, this is, if you're doubting the importance of the local church, why is it that just about every epistle that's written is written to the local church? Hmm? Um, Hebrews chapter 10 says, do not forsake the assembling with one another. Why? Because you're like that little gazelle out there by itself, and there's a roaring lion that sees easy prey. You ever see those? You know, National Geographic, right? Okay, good. Uh, so Paul instructs Timothy, who's a pastor in Ephesus. He's the pastor in Ephesus, and he instructs, him, instructs Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has, need, who has no need to be ashamed. What? Read this with me, Ready? rightly handling the word of truth. Now, this is the responsibility of every pastor, but this is also your responsibility, brothers and sisters. Like, you open the book, and you learn how to study the Bible. Like, we have an inductive Bible study course that's coming up in, I think, June, and, and I would strongly recommend that you sign up for it. It's 10 weeks long. You, you'll learn how to study the Bible uh, in that course. Uh, let's go to the, I think I have one more verse, right? Yep, Ephesians chapter 4. This is so great. I'm taking the, uh, some of the young adults through Ephesians uh, for, at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoons. And, um, and, and so we're told in Ephesians chapter 4 that God has gifted the church. These aren't spiritual gifts. These are individuals. He's gifted the church with pastors, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers. There's five of them. Um, and, and sometimes an individual will have multiple roles. Uh, I think that my role, that, that one of the things that God has called me to is obviously teaching and preaching and being your pastor, but also I have a resp- It seems like God has called me into the, in the realm of the prophetic, not foretelling what's going to happen, but forthtelling. Like, this is what the Word of God says, let's get on point, that kind of thing. So, 
So, uh, he, so he says that, and then he says this. Why? Why did God gift the church with these individuals? So that we may no longer be children tossed... Let's read this together. Ready? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's why. You want to know why you have a pastor and, and why you gather together and, and why you have life groups and why you have all, all these different things? Because God has gifted the church with individuals to help you, to help strengthen you in the faith so that when you come across some weird doctrinal stuff you know, that somebody at Walmart uh, shares with you, hey, we want to come to a Bible study tonight? Um, you're not tossed to and fro like the waves or like leaves blowing in the wind. That's, the, that's why the, the belt of truth is so important. You need the belt of truth. You need the Word of God. You need Scripture. It, it, here, here's, they say those who work in a mint don't need, to, don't need to be trained how to recognize counterfeit money. Why? Because they're working with the real stuff all the time so that when the counterfeit comes by, they notice it right away. They're able to single out right, right away. If you're in the book and your nose is in this book, it will be pretty easy to notice, to, to point out the counterfeits. So that's why this is the first thing that's listed. And then, and again, I'm going to do a whole sermon series, and we'll, do, we'll unpack each of these in, in individual Sundays down the road, but I just want you to see this. The breastplate of righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. Isn't it interesting that the breastplate of righteousness, what does it protect? The vital organs. It protects the vital organs. The breastplate has, uh, was a part of the warrior's armor. And it was so important. You didn't go into battle without your breastplate. You needed it. Satan is called the accuser, right? And he will look for ways to get you to doubt the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness over the wicked, your own wickedness and sin. Like, I had a conversation with somebody this, this week. And this person was, felt like they were being, they were hearing these thoughts that you're not, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And what the enemy will want you to do is to be not only convinced that you're not good enough, but that nothing's good enough. And the reality is, is that Jesus is, is good enough. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is good enough. He is everything that we need for our, for our, our own righteousness. So Satan's called the accuser, and, and um, the reality is we're not good enough, and we can, we can, we can uh, tell the devil, we can tell the, the, the evil one, yeah, that's true, I'm not good enough, but Christ is. He is. His righteousness was enough. He lived the life I could never live, and he died a death I deserved. On the third day, he rose from the grave, affirming everything that he said, and that is enough. That is enough. And you just, you, you, you just you sit in that, you bathe in that, you Put on that to cover the vital organs of your faith. He is enough. I love Romans chapter 3. It says this. Let's go. Let's read this together. Ready? For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's a really good word, by the way. It means payment. As payment. Uh, and that's enough. 
That's all we need. That is all we need. Not only do we have the belt of truth, but we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Listen, if you do not understand or know what the Bible says about the righteousness of Christ as it pertains to you, then you're not going to put on the breastplate of righteousness. You won't know how to. You, won't, you don't even know what it is. But the breastplate of righteousness is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that what he did on the cross covers your past, your present, and your future sins, period. That there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. You sit in that truth, and you walk in that truth. And then he goes on, uh, the, the next uh, piece is the, the shoes of the gospel are what we wear as we follow Jesus. Those shoes, is, is, it's, it's what we wear as we, as, as we obey Jesus, as we follow him. Like, re, remember the Sermon on the Mount when we were working through the Beatitudes? And the, the fourth Beatitude says this, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what? They will be satisfied. You, some of you, most of you were here for that sermon. What does that mean? Who am I hungering for? If I'm hungering for Jesus, who is my righteousness, I will be satisfied. Um, but it, but he, he go, there's another thing that Jesus said in John chapter 6. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's not talking about communion. He's not talking about the Eucharist. He's talking about Jesus is the bread of life. If I consume him, well, how do I consume him? Belt of truth. If I consume him, if I take him in, take his teachings in, and, and ingest them and make them a part of who I am, and I find that my thirst is satisfied by him, and he goes on to say, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's what abiding is. Abiding in Jesus is, is taking in his words into our heart and applying them to our life. That's the shoes that, he's ta that Paul's talking about here. You want to be able to resist the devil? You better be following Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, if you're like, I don't care what God says about this sin, I'm going to do it anyway, guess what? You're open prey. You're easy bait. And then, he, you know, he goes on, the shield of faith. Now, the shield of faith, wasn't, Paul doesn't have in mind this, this little inky-dinky little shield. It's like a four-foot-high, long field, shield and about two feet wide so that you can hide behind it to shield yourself from arrows. He says the shield of faith is the growing defense of a confidence that rests in God. Now, some of you have heard me use this illustration. Like, there are people in the Bible that, we, that Paul mentions and that we see in Acts who, like, their faith was capsized. Like, the, word is, the, the phrase that's used for people who, who walk away from the faith is they shipwrecked their faith. You, you've heard me use the illustration that the deeper that your, 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 your understanding of who God is goes is, is, is the depth that the ballast of your faith will go. And so when the storms of life come, it will be much more difficult for your, the ship of your faith to be capsized. You've heard me use that illustration before. Well, the same is going on here, the shield of faith. When the, when the enemy launches his attacks at you, whether it's, you know, look what you've done. You're not good enough. You should just quit. 
turn away from the faith. God doesn't love you. God hates you. Blah, 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 blah. Like, when you hear that from the enemy, like in the form of darts, you know, that are coming at you, or, or flaming darts is the way Paul describes it here, your shield of faith, the, the more you're in this book, the more you'll understand the righteousness of Christ, it's the breastplate of righteousness, and, and because of the breastplate of righteousness, you're going to fall deeper in love with Jesus, and you're going to want him more and more and more to be a part of your life. That's abiding in Jesus. That's, those are the sandals. The larger your shield is going to be. Just like that ballast, that shield will be more effective. Why? Because you're able to combat the devil and, and even your own flesh and even your own doubts with the Word of God. Uh, one theologian wrote a book, and there was a phrase in that book that was so good, it stuck with me, and he said, you need to preach the gospel to yourself to battle your, your unbelief, to battle, to battle your own flesh. Preach the gospel to your own self. How do you do that? Well, what does the Bible say? Like, you, many of you know, Romans chapter 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I've shared this with multiple, a whole bunch of you in just one-on-one -on -one conversations. Why do you hear, I mean, you heard me, even today you heard me reference Romans chapter 8, verse 1. What am I doing? Do I think you need to be reminded of Romans chapter 8, verse 1? Nope. You know who needs to be reminded of Romans chapter 8, verse 1? I do. I'm preaching the gospel to my own heart. I, I say this and I mean it uh, with, all my, with everything in me. When I'm preaching, one, every sermon I preach is a sermon I've written. It's come out of study in my office. Uh, I, don't, I don't buy sermons. I, don't, that's, that's, uh, I have my own thoughts about that. I think it's the dumbest thing and you rob your people, uh, the people that God's called you to serve. But I need to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to my life. And when I say, I need these words, when you hear me pray, I need these words just as much as you do, I really mean that. One of my friends said, hey, remember when you're pointing your finger, you have yeah, how many fingers pointing back at you, right? The shield of faith is the growing defense of a confidence that rests in God. And then the helmet of salvation is the confidence, the confidence that we have that Jesus is enough. So it's different than just the breastplate of righteousness. It's, the, it's just, I know Jesus is enough. He is my everything. Why, why is it on your head? Because... 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me uh, point this out to you. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy what? Arguments and every lofty what? Opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought what? Captive to obey Christ. That's the helmet of salvation. That's the purpose of that. That's the purpose of it. Uh, you know, what is the helmet of salvation? Man, it's resting in, it's confidently knowing in your mind that Romans chapter 8, verse 38 is true. For I am sure, let's read this together, ready? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Yeah. And then finally, the, the sword of the Spirit. So maybe some of you are wondering, where's the application part? We're in it. <laughs> this is the application part. How do you... Hey, how do you stand firm against 
the devil and his schemes, you put on the full armor of God. That's the application. It's practical. It's not rocket science. But if you're, if you're not you know, reading this book, if, you don't, if you're not plugged into a life group, or if, if you're watching the live stream and you just don't want to show up on Sunday, um, I'm not talking about those who can't show up, like if you're sick or whatever. I get that. But for those of you who can be here, uh, I, you, we need each other. Amen. We need each other. And, and we need to have our noses in this book. And we need to be listening to the Spirit of God speak into our hearts through the truth of His Word. And, and why? Because when you have the belt of truth and you got the breastplate of righteousness and you got the, you got the sandals that are the readiness of the gospel and, you, and you've got the shield of faith and you've got the helmet of salvation, uh, then the only offensive weapon that's, part of, that's included in the full armor is the sword of the Spirit, which Paul tells us is the what? The Word of God. It's the word of God. And the, the, the Greek word that's used here is rema, which is, which is the spoken word. It's the spoken word. Uh, it's really interesting that he uses that because in other places in describing the word of God, the word logos is used. Here it's used in describing the spoken word. Like we could use the word of God as an offensive sword by speaking it into our own lives and by speaking it into the lives of others. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you're familiar with it on some level. You don't have to be some master theologian and have the whole Bible memorized. For those of you who are not used to reading the Bible, here, I'll give you, I'll give you some help. Read the Gospel of Mark. Just start with that. And then after you read the Gospel of Mark, maybe read Acts. Maybe after Acts, read 1 John. Like, just start somewhere. Read a chapter a day or a paragraph a day. But, but let the Word of God saturate your hard heart. The, word, the sword of the Spirit is the offensive weapon of God's holy Word that He has told us that we can use. Paul tells us we need it. We need it. We need it as an offensive weapon. Uh, offense. Oh, yeah, offensive. Anyway. It's offensive, apparently. <laughs> Found that out this week. Um, and offensive. So Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. Let's read this together, right? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Um, Thomas is going to come up and, and uh, lead us in this song, but I just, just, just want you to think about that. Like, The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. The, the picture is that Roman so, soldier sword. It's, it's, it's sharp on both sides. And, uh, and it's used for thrusting and for, for slashing and for cutting. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the, that word of God is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Sam Storm said something here that I thought was helpful, and I just, just want to repeat it. Well, what do we do with the word? We proclaim the word. We see Jesus do it. If it's good enough for Jesus, right? It's good enough for us. In the wilderness, he proclaimed the word. Uh, we pray the word. We pray it. A lot of times when we're gathered for prayer, those who know me, who've prayed with me, I have my Bible open a lot of times. And I'll periodically read scripture as we're praying. 
We pray the word, and then we praise the word. We praise the word. One of the things that I love about um, Thomas and, and just kind of where we're headed is that, that what we sing matters. It's really important. And we're singing, we ought to be singing words that line up with Scripture, that line up, that line up with the Bible. And so we do that. So let's sing together, let's stand, and let's sing this final song together, and I'll come and I'll close this out in prayer, and then we'll be finished. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.